This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by the new podcast, Anomaly. Vanessa, one of my favorite YouTube holes to go down is like role play fantasy tabletop multiplayer games where I don't really know any of the people playing, but I love watching them have an adventure. Well, Casper, then you would love Anomaly. It's a role-playing meditation podcast that takes you into a world of magic and fantasy. You'll be invited to imagine yourself in scenarios such as learning to cast a tranquility spell or exploring a land once vanquished by a dragon, but all connected by a shared mythology. I am genuinely going to download this right now. This sounds amazing. (laughs) This podcast combines traits of a great dungeon master and those of a talented meditation guide, weaving tales of fantasy that stretch the imagination while you learn to center yourself, offer forgiveness, find confidence, and relieve stress. This is available now on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you are listening to this podcast right now. It's Anomaly, spelled with an I-E at the end and not a Y. Go to S-E-E-K-A-N-O-M-A. L-I-E dot com. That's SeekAnomaly.com to find out more. Chapter 26. Seen and Unforeseen. Luna said vaguely that she did not know how soon Rita's interview with Harry would appear in the Quibbler, that her father was expecting a lovely long article on recent sightings of Crumplehorn Snorkax. And of course, that'll be a very important story, so Harry's might have to wait for the following issue, said Luna. I'm Matt Potts. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. So Matt, our Every Flavored Bean conversation today is going to be about whether or not we would want to be legilimens. Would you want to be able to read other people's minds, and if so, in what circumstances? I have a confident and emphatic answer to that question. I'm so excited. I have mixed feelings about this, so... Everyone, you can hear more about that if you sign up for our Patreon at patreon.com slash Harry Potter Sacred Text. You can also review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe there for ad-free episodes. But Matt, we are going to be talking about the theme of doubt today. And doubt is also the theme of our upcoming pilgrimage about Northanger Abbey in Bath. Have you read Northanger Abbey? I haven't. It is the most charming Austin novel. So everybody, if you are someone who is interested in Northanger Abbey, in today's theme of doubt, or in coming to the beautiful city of Bath with me and the faculty, Margaret H. Willison, then you should go and learn more at readingandwalkingwith.com. Vanessa, I have to tell you that I studied abroad in the UK during college, and Bath was my favorite place. It's so beautiful. so So beautiful, yeah. Vanessa, I have no doubt (laughs) that you're going to tell us a wonderful story about doubt. So Matt, as you know, we bought our first house last summer. And this house is just a delightful house. And there was very little that we felt like we needed to change about the house in order to make it a place that we were really excited to live. But there was one thing that I was sure had to change in order for me to love living here. And that was the color, colors, plural, because it was two-tone, of Mm. the room that is now my office. It was a dining room in the previous iteration. 
Oh, interesting. So it had a big chandelier in the middle of the room, which Peter took down because that would have been dangerous for me. And also, the wall color was two different shades of mustard. It was Mm. gray poupon and honey mustard. But like, if they had both been spoiled a little bit, you know, like they were in the fridge too long. Like those were the colors of this room. And, you know, we're on Zoom all the time. And so I was legitimately embarrassed, even with a blurry background, that I was sitting in like a baby vomit colored room on Zoom meetings. I would feel like I had to explain to people. I'd be like, just so you know, this is a new house. We just moved in. I'm going to paint this room. I had a tremendous amount of doubt of my ability to paint this room. I am notorious for having a lack of attention to details. I am not good with my hands. I am very klutzy. And I'm very motivated by laziness. So I bought all the stuff. I like set aside a weekend. I was going to paint this room. And it it was awful. And every <laughs> we had a lot of visitors that weekend. <laughs> And everybody sort of came through and they would be like, wow, it looks a mess right now, but it's going to be worth it. And I would look at them and I'd be like, you don't know that. It could be a streaky mess at the end. Like, this could look terrible. I could do this for two, two and a half full days, spend hundreds of dollars, and it could just be embarrassing. And they all, my friend Molly, my friend Franny, the kid's friend's mom who came over, everybody was like, no, no, you're going to have such a sense of pride and accomplishment. And I was like, I doubt that entirely. I think I'm going to feel a sense of shame and humiliation. So I finished. And I will say, it looks pretty good. Like, you have to look (laughs) in order to see the mistakes. You really do. Like, if you walk it, it does not look streaky. It does not look bad in any way. And so people who love me have said to me, you were wrong to doubt yourself. But then I show them the paint footprint that is now permanent on our back deck. Or I show them the pants that I ruined or the corner of the windowsill that has paint on it. And they're like, fair, it's not perfect. And here's what I think about doubt. It's important. I think that we're like, don't doubt yourself. It's going to all be worth it. And like, sure, this is better than my poop walls. But I think I was right to doubt myself and have kind of moderate expectations and communicate those clearly with my husband so that he could not be mad at me when he saw all the destruction I wreaked on the house by trying to paint it. I just feel very defensive of my doubt. Vanessa, I like the story. I agree that doubt is important. Yes. Because I think overconfidence can be a real problem. Watch any of the good Will Ferrell movies. And you know that overconfidence (laughs) can be a character flaw. However, I don't know that every person who was coming into that room 
was like, I have utter confidence that you are going to do something perfect. <laughs> I think what they had confidence in was like, a reasonably competent person will make a couple mistakes and it will still look better than the poop walls. <laughs> I think that's, I think you thought they were placing confidence in your perfection. And I think what they had confidence in was that there's a wide range of possibilities that would look better than the walls you had. <laughs> it does. It looks remarkably better. Right. And I think that's where the confidence was. So I agree with your story. I agree with the takeaway from your story, which is that doubt is important. It protects us from overconfidence. I wonder if some of the commenters maybe had the same opinion of your painting skills that you do, only they also had the same opinion of your former wall color. <laughs> you know, Vanessa, interestingly, the root of doubt, actually, all the way back, it comes from the Latin word for two. So it means to be like of two minds about something. Ooh. Later on in like the 12th century in Europe, it, it acquires a sense of fear, like to doubt is to fear because you're unsure or uncertain or confused or whatever. But I find it really interesting that like at the base, the root of it is like, oh, it could go one of two ways here. I'm not sure. And that was how you felt. You're like, you know, I know that these walls look terrible, but my painting them could go one of two ways. <laughs> and I think that everyone, again, I think everyone who saw you in the midst of painting maybe believed that was true. They just were sure that both of those two possibilities <laughs> were better than the existent one. Well, Matt, I'm really excited to talk more about doubt. But first, let's do our best to remind people as to what happened in these chapters. Okay. On your mark. Get set. Go. So Luna's like, I don't know when the article come out. And Harry's like, I don't know what happened with, with Cho. She's obviously still mad at me. And Hermione's like, let me explain it to you. And she does. And then um, the the article does come out. And I was like, oh, my gosh, here's another side of the story. Who would have thought that there's another side of the story? And Seamus is like, I believe your side now. And then he's practicing with, with Snape. And then um, Snape says, you're you're foolish and stubborn. And, and then he gets inside Snape's head. And Snape's like, okay, that's better. And then he's like, wait, where did you go? What was that room you entered? And then they hear screaming upstairs. And they go upstairs. And Trelawney's getting fired. And, and she gets to live there still. And... And Forenza is the new divination teacher. You've gotten really good. Whew. I still have not acquired the capacity to breathe while doing it. So Sure. Vanessa, I am ready to count you in. Are you ready to summarize this chapter in 30 seconds? I'm ready to try. All right. Three, two, one, go. So the other thing that happens is that Ron is just abysmal, abysmal at Quidditch. She just like causes this huge loss. Even though Ginny's a pretty good seeker, they lose to Hufflepuff and it's just so embarrassing. Everybody is really excited that Harry has finally gotten one up on Umbridge because she now is having to deal with the fact that Harry, um, that like Harry is getting the truth out there, but she does give Harry another detention for that. Trelawney has to stop teaching, but she doesn't get kicked out of Hogwarts because Dumbledore is like, that's up to me. The less I have to do, the worse I do. I'm like, oh, Matt got all of the big stuff. So, Vanessa, I want to pick up on this etymology of doubt, you know, doubt having to do with two-ness, like being of two minds, because there's this situation early in the chapter that we hear about that you touched on in your, your really excellent 30-second recap. So, we know that Ron is having a hard time playing keeper for the Gryffindor Quidditch team. The thing about it, though, is like there are lots of hints and clues in the surrounding details of our account of Ron's failure that suggests that his problem is primarily one of lack of confidence or of self-doubt, right? So Fred and George, when they're lamenting 
how terrible Ron is doing. One of the things they say is that like when he's on form, he's great. And he's only on form when no one is looking at him. Like if no one is watching him, he saves everything. <laughs> right. And I think, I mean, what this suggests, and I've been in this situation before too, right? Like he gets self-conscious about whether he will fail or succeed. And that uncertainty leads him to fail because he loses all his confidence. Where when he's not concerned about whether he will fail or succeed, he just acts freely without anxiety. And that's that confidence, right? That kind of confidence. The other thing that's interesting about the situation with Ron, though, is how Angelina, the captain of the Quidditch team, appears to be handling this. So there's this like sense among the Gryffindor fans that maybe Ron needs to be removed because he can't capably play his position during any of these matches and they keep losing in kind of catastrophic fashion, right? But Angelina says to him, you can't quit. We need you. I have confidence in you, right? One of the things I'm wondering, this is just a question for you, Vanessa. Do you think Angelina actually has confidence in him? Or do you think that she is saying this because she's trying to build confidence in Ron? Or rather, is it a moot question whether Angelina has confidence or not? Because the real thing is that Ron needs it. And she's trying to do whatever it would take to give it to him. I bet she knows, right? Because Fred and George are like, yeah, when he feels like nobody is watching him, he does great. And I'm sure Angelina has seen that or has seen signs of that. She's an astute coach. And I also think that if she really believed he was terrible and completely hopeless, then she would be running emergency tryouts, right? And be like, okay, like there's got to be someone out there who's better than this. So I think it's both true and is attempting at the right strategy, right? Like is saying to him, we believe in you. I just remember once so vividly, I was when I was doing karate as a little kid, you also like do a lot of gymnastics as part of your karate. And I was working again and again and again. I was seven or eight years old on doing a no-handed cartwheel, an aerial. And I could do it in front of the instructor. And I did it successfully in front of the instructor several times. And I said to him, I was like, no, we have to keep practicing because I know once my mom comes to look, I'll only have one chance in front of my mom. And I will get nervous. And the instructor being like, you're right. Let's write like and created the time for me to practice and do it like six times in a row without a mistake. So that when my mom came and I knew she was in a rush and we had to get home, you know, I knew I was only going to be able to say, mom, look once. And like he had created the opportunity for me to calmly get the confidence. And so. What I want from Angelina is for her to believe in him and then to like stay out late one night just chucking goals at him again and again until he gets too tired to have self-doubt or to feel that and then like prove to himself, okay, I really can do it if I just don't think about it anymore. And I'm not saying that she should have this wisdom at 17. My karate instructor was like a professional teacher of children. But, right, like this is a real thing and there are things that she can do. So I just, I don't think the fact that it isn't helping means that it's not true. I think that's right. And also, you know, we we have the second hand from Fred and George. Who knows what conversation Angelina actually had with Ron. But, but at least from what we have from Fred and George, I think the danger here in what Angelina is doing is that she doesn't sound believable, right? When she goes to Ron and says, you're really great. Ron's like, you're deluded. Like, obviously (laughs) I am failing, right? What she should be saying is like, you are doing really badly, but I know that you save everything when no one's watching. So I have confidence in your ability, 
we need to, there's a different problem we need to fix, right? It's not an ability problem. It's a confidence problem. So let's talk about like how to help you in these high pressure situations and then go out and practice and see if there are ways that they can, you know, practice together that creates pressure or creates distraction or all the things that's making him fail. But, you know, I think that he might have more confidence in her ability to coach him if she named to him that she sees what he sees, which is like, you are failing in the matches. You are not doing well enough, but I know you're capable of it because I've seen this other thing. So let's figure out how to to close the gap. Doubt is just such a head game, right? Because you do, you don't want to be overly hubristic. You don't want to have too much self-confidence, but you also need enough confidence to be able to like not overthink things. And it, it's just an impossible thing. And I think sports is such a good metaphor for this where like you can have all the physical ability in the world and like you need your mind to be in the game, but you also need to be a certain level of distracted from how important the game is. It's really like, it is a wild thing to be right-sized, right? And like have the right amount of doubt and doubt in the right thing. Just because you doubt the outcome or doubt the perfection of when you're going to be able to do any single thing doesn't mean you should doubt your ability, right? Like this is really complicated what Ron is trying to do. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of the reasons we've talked about this. One of the reasons I love baseball so much is because one of the primary like competitive tasks of baseball is managing doubt. Because yeah. if you're great, you fail most of the time at any role in baseball, which means you're constantly having to manage like being confident in spite of the fact that most of the time you fail. It, yeah, when people can do that, it shows like a freedom of mind and like a, exactly the kind of freedom that Ron needs. And that when Ron has... He succeeds. He thrives, right? And it makes so much sense to me that Fred and George see that so clearly, right? Because hmm. they have failed a million times at inventing, you know, different things for their joke shop. It, right? Like they've given themselves boils that have burst. Like they've they have failed a lot and have gotten really comfortable with that failure. And so I think it makes sense to me that they're like, yeah, I remember when I doubted myself and it was really painful. But they have found the sweet spot where they are experimenting, right? They're not like, no, 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 I'm sure first time this is definitely going to work, right? Like they have this like simultaneous like confidence while experimenting that's really hard to come by, man. Yeah, let's name it in another Weasley child also. I mean, we also learn that Ginny is finding a lot of success as a Quidditch player and as a seeker. I mean... She tells us in the chapter that she prefers other positions to seek her and looks forward to Harry coming back. But we learn that the reason why she's really skilled, like Fred and George are are confused, like where did she become so good at Quidditch? And it's because like even though they didn't let her play, she had enough confidence in her own ability that she would kind of break in and borrow brooms and just develop that skill, right? So she's already kind of cultivated this kind of confidence and she has already moved through this thing that Ron is still moving through, which is like just performing even when others don't believe in you, performing even when others don't question you. Yeah. Jeannie's really practiced at that. So when she gets this opportunity, she's able to take advantage of it because she yeah. has this confidence, because she has these siblings who did not believe in her, and she's already reckoned and wrestled with that and built up her own kind of self-confidence. Yeah, and not perfectly, right? She's like 95% on it. But then Harry is like, ah, if she hadn't flinched, she would have gotten it a little sooner, right? Like, it is beautifully laid out, this theme of doubt in terms of athletic skill. Yeah. But there is, I think, an even bigger 
plot point that takes place in this chapter that is all about doubt, which is Harry's article coming out in The Quibbler. The reason that Hermione arranged for this and blackmailed Rita <laughs> into writing it and like was able Charming to secure a publisher <laughs> yeah. and like was able to secure a publisher through like an unofficial <laughs> relationship with Luna, right? Like she is like pulling strings yes. to make this PR opportunity happen. But the reason that she did it is that she wanted to create a sense of doubt in Fudge's claims that Voldemort isn't back. She wanted to create a sense of doubt that the Daily Prophet, she wants to create a sense of doubt that like Dumbledore should be out of the Wizengamot and Dumbledore is really getting dotty in his old age. And I I love thinking about this as like, I am going to create a sense of doubt. You all are too confident in the wrong thing. And she knows that this is not going to perfectly quell all of the rumors, right? Like she knows that the Quibbler is kind of an odd magazine <laughs> and that not everybody is going to read this and suddenly be like, aha, Harry Potter is telling the truth. But all she needs is a little sense of doubt for people to slowly start to believe Harry. Yeah, I think that's really right. And I think that's the right formulation of it. And one of the reasons I think that's the right formulation is because I think before we started having this conversation, I had the wrong formulation of it. <laughs> I thought that she was trying to build confidence in Harry. I thought she was thinking, oh, if people doubt Harry, if he gets his story out there, people will start to believe him. But you're right. The Quibbler is not a trusted source. So it's not actually about building confidence in Harry. It's about her seeing that confidence in the ministry's official line has started to crack because of the the escape of these prisoners from Azkaban. Like, this is a really opportunistic and endearing felony offense. <laughs> right? <laughs> this is a really, a really opportunistic <laughs> attempt at blackmail. We do not condone felony, but... <laughs> we don't. But it's a really opportunistic because this wouldn't have worked maybe two weeks ago before that group escaped Azkaban. But now that they've escaped Azkaban and people are starting to ask questions like, how come there aren't Dementors everywhere? Like, there is this doubt that's circulating already. And so Hermione is like, oh, we don't need to make everybody believe Harry. We just need to take advantage of the doubt that is arising in and around the official story. And so the quibbler is as good as any other source to do that because it doesn't have to be convincing or the most trusted source. It just has to open this doubt further, make this story seem less believable. And it works, right? Because it's doubt is kind of a zero-sum game, or at least in a situation like this when there are competing narratives, right? As people start to doubt the ministry line, they become more open to Harry's and feel like they have to choose one way or another, which is why many of the students at Hogwarts and Seamus in particular, like just says, okay, I believe you now. Like there's, yeah. there are too many holes in that story. I have too much doubt there. If I have to believe one or the other, your story is starting to look more convincing to me. So like, it's this really smart strategic move from Hermione taking advantage of this event. And it is around recognizing that we don't need full confidence and certainty. We just need more doubt about this one story. Yeah. And she, what she's trusting is that now people are going to start asking the right questions. And I think that she's also right. Like, I'm not going to be able to convince everybody right. with 100% assuredness that Harry is telling the truth. And that yep. isn't even what I need. I don't need that. I need them to be putting pressure on the ministry. Yep. And so I think that that points to going back to my story and potentially articulating it better now than I was able to at the top of the episode like when doubt is worthwhile, right? Like I'm glad I doubted my ability to paint because I bought a lot of tarps <laughs> and like really spent 
so much time taping down tarps. And I was right to do that, right? Like doubt can, like Hermione is harnessing it, be used as a strategy to be like, wait, Minister Fudge, I have questions for you. Why did this happen? Why aren't there Dementors out and about if there's been this mass breakout? Why does it seem as though Voldemort is back in X, Y, and Z way? So I do think doubt is often a really efficacious strategy. And I think there's really something interesting, Vanessa, also in Umbridge's response to the Quibbler story, because I think she has the same strategic intuition that Hermione does. Umbridge realizes that Harry doesn't need the whole wizarding world to believe him. He just needs more people to disbelieve the ministry, right? And even though the Quibbler is an untrustworthy source, Umbridge knows that this untrustworthy source will increase doubt in the ministry's line. And so that's why she reacts with banning it, right? The the interesting thing is, and the, the strategic level that you kind of Hermione goes beyond Umbridge in realizing is that banning it, like censoring it, is actually going to make everybody want to read it more and will sow that seed of doubt further. If Umbridge just ignored it or didn't pay attention to it, then no one would want to read it. But the fact that this ministry person says this information cannot be heard, cannot be read, cannot be internalized by this community, that increases their doubt, right? They're like, oh my gosh, if she doesn't want us to know it, then we have to know it. Exactly. It's exactly about doubt because what she's done is cast doubt upon herself. Like what is so outrageous in there that you are afraid I will find out about it, right? Like, and it again, if we are thinking of doubt as this balancing act where like, you know, Dumbledore as a leader probably wants to be doubted to some extent, but to the exact right extent. Please question me and hold me accountable, but also believe me and I really am trying to do everything I can to protect you, right? Like we all want, a very specific amount of doubt from one another. And almost always it's easier to do Monday morning quarterbacking on it, right? Where it's like, why didn't you tell me that I was going the wrong way? And it's like, well, I thought that you knew something I didn't. It's like, well, doubt me. (laughs) But if you're doubting someone too much, then you're a backseat driving, you know? And so I, I think that Umbridge has done like bad doubt calculus here. But I think good doubt calculus is really hard. Hi, listeners. This is Naomi Westwater. You may know me from my previous classes at Not Sorry. I'm dropping into your feed today to let you know about an upcoming course I'm running starting March 17th called Creating Daily Ritual, Tarot as a Sacred Practice. In this course, I will teach you about the history and meaning of the cards in the Rider-Waite-Smith Tarot deck and model how they can be used as a tool for self-reflection and creativity. Through lecture, discussion with your classmates, and solo journaling, I will aim to help you develop your individual connection with tarot, this ancient tool for meaning making. If you're looking to elevate your daily ritual, please join me starting Sunday evening, March 17th, for six weeks of habit building, learning, and community. Head to notsorryworks.com for more information. And be sure to check out our sliding scale pricing and scholarships listed on the website. That's not sorryworks.com. But I will tell you somewhere that I do think that Umbridge does decent doubt calculus. Hmm. In choosing Trelawney to fire in this chapter, the way Umbridge does this is ridiculous. If we are thinking of Umbridge firing Trelawney as a PR move, it is so badly executed. I think that Umbridge thinks everyone is going to see my power by 
firing Trelawney in front of everyone. She doesn't realize that she's going to garner no sympathy and that, in fact, everybody is just going to be sort of cheering for Trelawney, who's a puppy being kicked, you know, out of the barn. But I do think that Umbridge's firing of Trelawney is a smart strategic decision for a first firing because Trelawney claims to be good at predicting the future. And everybody except for Parvati and Lavender doubt that that is true. And everybody other than these two girls who I bet are on to something because they are very smart young women. But everybody other than those two girls doubt her teaching, doubt her skill. And so as Umbridge is like, get out, you're a bad teacher, there is no one who can credibly stand up and be like, no, no, she's actually a brilliant seer. I mean, except Dumbledore, arguably. But there is nobody in this castle, and no student in this castle who wants to stand up and say, you're wrong. I doubt your assertion here. Like, this is a really fair thing. Trelawney is a terrible teacher and doesn't seem to see the future in in the way that she claims to be able to. Yeah, the reaction of the community is one of sympathy, not of, like, defense. <laughs> not right. like, They're not like, uh-uh. That's right. They feel sympathy for her because they see her being treated cruelly by Umbridge and by the ministry, but they don't really have an account of why her teaching is good. And in fact, as you know, Umbridge has been sowing doubt about this from the beginning. It says in this chapter, she's constantly asking questions like, you know, what's going to happen next week or what's what's for lunch Thursday or and even in this scene, she's like, I would have expected that you knew this was going to happen. Right. We've been, right. Aren't you supposed to be able she's to, such a to jerk. anticipate these things? Yeah. But that's part of what you suggested she's doing, that she's trying to take advantage of everyone's doubt around Trelawney's skill as well as her teaching, which is, distinguishes her, I think, from Hagrid, right? I think most of the school also thinks Hagrid's a bad teacher. I mean, there's a there are exceptions, very few exceptions. Even most of Gryffindor, I think, thinks he might not be a great teacher. But, you know, our, our beloved three think he's, well, maybe just two of them think that he's a good, <laughs> a good teacher. And theirs is rooted in sympathy a lot as well. But I don't think anybody, even the people that resent him and want him removed, I don't think that they think he's a bad caretaker of magical creatures. Right. right? Like, Draco might say something about whether it's right for Hagrid to be having a hippogriff on the grounds. And he might even make up a thing about how he's a poor caretaker of hippogriffs. But no one actually seriously believes that Hagrid doesn't know how to take care of magical creatures. And so, like, there's more sympathy there. There's more confidence in his innate ability, even if the teaching isn't great. But with with Trelawney, there's all this uncertainty, all this doubt. And if you're going to start making staff cuts, this is the place to start. You're right. Yeah, it creates even more credibility in Umbridge. Right now, if somebody says to her, you've come in and started ruining the school, she's like, I've come in and fired bad teachers. I'm getting bad teachers out, right? Right. And I think that this is, yeah, it's just really cunning. I'm like, this is, you know, the best of Slytherin as far as strategy goes. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, Vanessa. I think the only thing she misjudges here is a thing that we see other Slytherins misjudge, which is like the power of empathy, the power of sympathy, the power of right. these love. other things that are, yeah, of love, which are yeah. harder to measure. And hard, And this is why people react the way they do to Trelawney, because most of the people in this community can hold two thoughts at once, which is she's not a great teacher, but is worthy of being treated in a dignified way, right? right. And because Umbridge can't see both those things, that's where she misplays her hand in this. Absolutely.
So Vanessa, our sacred reading practice for this week is once again the practice of sacred imagination. In this practice, I'm going to read a passage from the chapter. And as the Jesuits who invented this practice did, we are going to try to descend into the scene in a really kind of almost somatic way, like embodied way to try to really place ourselves in our imagination in the scene to notice what we experience when placing ourselves really deliberately and deep within the scene. And the passage I thought we would use would be one from a scene that we don't really talk about. So a big part of this chapter is an account of one of Harry's occlumency lessons with Snape. And it's actually a lesson where some interesting things happen, like Harry gets inside Snape's head a little bit. And Harry enters this mysterious door that he has not been able to enter before. And so, you know, there's a reason why we get this particular lesson narrated to us. But I thought I'd take a portion of that scene for our sacred imagination practice. Are you ready? Yeah, I can't wait. He raised his wand. One, two, three, legilimens. A hundred dementors were swooping towards Harry across the lake in the grounds. He screwed up his face in concentration. They were coming closer. He could see the dark holes beneath their hoods. Yet he could also see Snape standing in front of him, his eyes fixed on Harry's face, muttering under his breath, and somehow Snape was growing clearer, and the Dementors were growing fainter. Harry raised his own wand. Protego! Snape staggered. His wand flew upwards, away from Harry, and suddenly Harry's mind was teeming with memories that were not his. A hook-nosed man was shouting at a cowering woman, while a small, dark-haired boy cried in a corner. A greasy-haired teenager sat alone in a dark bedroom, pointing his wand at the ceiling, shooting down flies. A girl was laughing as a scrawny boy tried to mount a bucking broomstick. Enough! Harry felt as though he had been pushed hard in the chest. He staggered several steps backwards, hit some of the shelves covering Snape's walls, and heard something crack. Snape was shaking slightly and was very white in the face. The back of Harry's robes was damp. One of the jars behind him had broken when he fell against it. The pickled, slimy thing within was swirling in its draining potion. Reparo, hissed Snape, and the jar sealed itself at once. Well, Potter, that was certainly an improvement. Panting slightly, Snape straightened the pensive in which he had again stored some of his thoughts before starting the lesson, almost as though he was checking they were still there. I don't remember telling you to use a shield charm, but there is no doubt that it was effective. Harry did not speak. He felt that to say anything might be dangerous. He was sure he had just broken into Snape's memories, that he had just seen scenes from Snape's childhood. It was unnerving to think that the little boy who had been crying as he watched his parents shouting was actually standing in front of him with such loathing in his eyes. Let's try again, shall we? said Snape. So Vanessa, what did you observe during the reading of that passage? I don't know if it's because, like, we're in this, like, legilimens, <laughs> occlumency situation, but I had a different experience than I feel like I usually do during this exercise of, like, being very in my body as Harry. Mm-hmm. And so, like, not noticing sort of, like, smells, but, like, getting overheated. And then, like, w- when it broke, I was suddenly in, like, a very cold sweat and this, mm. like, disoriented, like, I don't know what just happened. It was like being waking up from the very end of a nightmare, right? Where, like, you notice that you're hot and sweating, and then you wake up and you're freezing because <laughs> you've been sweating. Like, that is what it really felt like for me. 
it's the first time that it's occurring to me that like what Harry is engaged in here is a kind of waking nightmare. And for somebody who has regular nightmares, like no wonder he doesn't want to do this. It's not just Snape, right? Like, you know, it says at a different point in the chapter that he's being forced to relive bad things that happened with Dudley that his like conscious thoughts had forgotten. And now he's seeing things that Snape doesn't even want to remember. It just seems like a kind of a like trauma on top of trauma. And so, yeah, I was just like very in my body and like nauseous at just like how physically unpleasant this was, like a car sick feeling. This is awful. This sounds incredibly unpleasant to me. What about you, Matt? Yeah, and, and Snape's lack of sympathy here is even more unsettling because of that. I had sort of a different response than that. I mean, I I saw that. I think you're right. I mean, one of the things that's tricky about using this as a passage for sacred imagination is it already is a passage that's inside <laughs> a couple of characters' heads, right? And so we're imagining being inside, imagining being inside a character's head, right? Yeah. But one of the things that was interesting to me was just that the the memories, the traumatic memories started to go away as Snape came into focus for him. That was one of the moments that really stood out to me mm-hmm. was like, mm-hmm. I really saw Snape come into focus and saw Harry like gather some strength around pushing down these memories that were not ones that he wanted to explore. There are ones that Snape was exploring in order to test him. And that kind of drawing Snape into focus is exactly what prevented him from experiencing those things. So that was one of the things that really stood out to me is just like I saw in my mind's eye, like Snape coming into focus and those other images kind of washing out as Snape came into focus. The other moment was just the one right at the end. You know, so much of sacred imagination is about trying to think about the somatic, like physical responses. What does it smell like? What does it sound like? And I got a little bit of that too. When he breaks the jar, I felt like a trickle of, of liquid, right? But the kind of emotional experience is not something I tend to pay as much attention to in sacred imagination, but there was something about Harry noting through the narrator's voice that this little crying child is the same person as the man looking at me with such loathing. There was just like this moment of empathy in Harry, which he doesn't have for Snape very much, at least not so far in the series, that I, I felt that empathy. Right. And I'm not sure I've noticed it in the same way when I read through this the first time, but it, it maybe because I was inhabiting Harry's character so closely when that happened, like the the cognitive dissonance of that felt more acute. And the acuteness of that cognitive dissonance is only because the empathy was real. Right. Like if the empathy wasn't real, there would be no cognitive dissonance. The fact that he's feeling this means that he actually is feeling some empathy for this boy who's suffering. And I, maybe it's because Harry knows what it's like to be in a household where there's not enough love. Yeah. Yeah, it is an incredibly intimate thing that they're doing. And it's a funny thing to have two people do who hate each other so much. Yeah. Like, it makes me wonder, like, there's nobody else who's good at occlumency at Hogwarts, Dumbledore. Like, (laughs) I mean, he wants it to be someone who he trusts in the order in case that's right. What they see in Harry's head. Yeah. I, yeah, I do wish that somebody, I like, part of me is on Snape's side of like, come on, Harry, we've explained to you why this is important. Yeah. Can you please just like flip and pay attention? But also, like someone pull Snape aside and be like, the way to do this is to build a relationship with him. You guys are actually doing something very intimate. Yeah. 
Oh, right. Or like Dumbledore, if you're going to require Harry to go to Occlumency with Snape every week, require Snape to go to therapy every week <laughs> so so he can manage <laughs> yeah. this relationship a little bit better. Yeah. Yeah. Matt, thank you so much for this really like emotionally wrought sacred imagination. Thank you, Vanessa. Our voice memo this week is from Zeph. Hi, HBST team. This is Zeph, and I use he, him, or they, them pronouns. I just listened to your episode on Book 5, Chapter 21, The Eye of the Snake, which you read through the theme of care. I was really struck by Matt's etymology of care, to worry, to sorrow, to have grief for. I'm a volunteer firefighter and EMT, and as such, I spend a lot of time and energy thinking about and doing what we call patient care. Of course, that means care in the loving sense, of being there for people who are having a terrible day. But it also totally means care in the worry sense. One of the things I'm trained in is thinking about how is this patient trying to die on me so that if they're going to go downhill, I can do something about it before they do. One of the side effects of this way of thinking is hypervigilance and anxiety. So Matt's story about worry and care for loved ones when they're away from you resonated too. I notice it in myself at times, like walking through an airport and thinking, if that person collapsed, where's the closest AED? How would I describe my location to additional responders coming to help? As for the sorrow and grief, yep, that's part of patient care too. Almost all responders get to deal with the acute and sometimes chronic stress of patient suffering and death. We all carry those heavy calls with us. So I'd like to offer a blessing to Madame Pomfrey and the healers of St. Mungo's, along with fellow responders and medical professionals. May we all remember to care for ourselves as well as others, and may we find ourselves in communities where our struggles are seen and valued. Thank you so much for this amazing podcast and community. Aside from being delightful and thought-provoking, it has also prompted me to develop my own rituals for honoring patients who die before, during, or after my care. Thanks. Zeph, I just want to say thank you so much for not just this thoughtful voicemail, but also for the beautiful care that it sounds like you offer to your patients. And I know that if I were ever in the need of emergency care, I would feel so lucky to have someone like you show up and attend to it. So thank you. Yeah, Zeph, thank you for such a beautiful voice memo. I mean, one of the things about rituals is kind of the ritual that you have practice of attending to your patients is one that you carry with you even when you're walking to the airport, right? And so it means that you carry this kind of level of of worry and concern and awareness all the time. I'm sure that's a sign that you're a great firefighter and EMT. I'm sure it's probably an attribute that many first responders have. And I'll tell you what, the next time I walk through an airport, I'm going to look around and I'm going to think, I bet there's somebody here who's thinking that about the other people here. And that's going to make me feel better knowing that there are folks like you who make this, who carry this as part of their life. And also, I'm just really moved that you've created rituals around patients that you've lost and that if this podcast has contributed to that grace and that gift in any way, I'm, I'm just really grateful to have you in our community and be a part of this community with you. It is now time for us to honor members of our community who have been loved and lost. Georgia Gigi Rutherford, who was 93 and three quarters, an amazing grandmother, great-grandmother, generous opinion giver, and voracious reader. Harold Swoush, who was 83, a lover of barbecue and fount of history knowledge. Horst Grieb, who was 83, a loving husband, father, grandfather, and friend. 
and who always looked forward. And Martha Norberry, who was 87, a grandmother and a teacher who taught many to read. May their memories be a blessing to us all. Matt, we now get to bless a character in the chapter, and I am going to bless Ginny Weasley. Ginny Weasley, who heard a big no and decided to make it a bigger yes. Her brothers are like, you can't play with us. And she's like, fine, I don't want to play with you. And she goes out in the night and steals brooms and does what she has to do to learn. And I just feel like this is how oppressed peoples have learned for millennia. And you you got to sneak it in, and it's unfair. And just, you know, I love that Ginny was like, screw this, this is stupid, and figured out a way to learn. So it's awesome. It's super brave and very cool. And it shouldn't be necessary, but God bless you, Ginny, you did it. What about you, Matt? I have a Quidditch-related blessing as well, the corollary to your Ginny. I want to bless Ron. Ugh, Ron. All of us, including myself, have been in the place where the thing I most wanted to do is the thing I could not do, especially when everyone's watching. Yeah. And it's just, it's, it's an awful experience. And it's not going anywhere. That's the thing. I mean, it, the, the blessed relief of quitting is not available to Ron. He has to keep <laughs> persevering. And God bless him. Next week, we're going to be reading Book 5, Chapter 27, The Centaur and the Sneak, through the theme of discernment. And I am going to be telling a story about discernment. Just a few reminders before we give our thanks. We have some amazing classes for sale right now. One is our Sense and Sensibility and Fix-It Fiction class with Margaret H. Willison. The other is Finding the Right Words About Love, a journaling class with Jolie Doggett. We have Showing Up for Queer Kids with Taylor Bueller, a chaplaincy-based class. And then we have Creating Daily Ritual, Tarot is Sacred with Naomi Westwater. You can find out more about all of those at NotSorryWorks.com. And you can find out more about our North Anger Abbey pilgrimage in Bath with Margaret H. Wilson and me on the theme of doubt at readingandwalkingwith.com. This has been a Not Sorry production, and Not Sorry Productions is a feminist production company. Our executive producer is Caitlin Hoffmeister. We're edited and produced by AJ Yaramas. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Boll, and we are distributed by Acast. Thanks this week to Zeph for the beautiful voice memo, to Ariana Nettleman, Julia Argy, Margaret H. Willison, Nikki Zoltan, Hannah Rehack, Casper Turkile, Courtney Brown, Natalie Folkerts, Stephanie Paulsell, and everyone who sent in the names of their loved ones this week. Have you read Northanger Abbey? I haven't. It is the most charming Austin novel. Wasn't it a movie recently? I don't think recently. No, Mansfield Park was. Mansfield Park was. Sorry. By recently, do you mean like 1999? 10 years. Was that how old Mansfield Park is? I think so. Wow. Okay, sorry. I'm old. (laughs) 